We are rolling now. Counting us down. Three, two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hey guys, welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I'm Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be movies, music, television, spoken word, books, poetry, experiences, things that have built us up as people. And in sharing them, we hope that it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. Ooh, that was delicious, like a sweet, sweet gourmet rock. Heck yeah. What? It's in the movie. Oh. The, the big dude who eats rocks. Yes, got He's it. He's like, gourmet rock, crunch, 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 watch out for my crumbs, and boulders and shit are falling down on the puppets. That's true. Yeah. Um, I forgot you, all what, of... Yeah, what'd you watch? Um, oh, I watched a different movie. Uh, I, I watched the never-ending story two ah the ending story um yes it's it's very (laughs) sad um no we are uh if you didn't read the title or hadn't guessed by our inferences yeah this just auto played they don't know what we're talking about (laughs) uh we're talking about uh never ending story the 1984 film uh directed by wolfgang peterson based on the novel uh by michael ind of the same name. I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. I don't know. I don't know German. And and he's, and he's Germans. Um so uh it is and it stars a bunch of people. It, it was does. originally shot in uh Germany. Some scenes were shot in Canada. So some of the scenes um especially like the first few scenes were uh some some of the characters were actually speaking German and they dubbed over in English. Um and then you mean the puppet characters? Uh, no, the like human characters. Um, I mean, and some of the puppet characters. So the rockbiter was speaking German. Okay. And um, the uh, hairy guy was speaking German. Got um, it. Oh, the the hair like the witch man person. Yes. Yes. And for American audiences, they brought in Steven Spielberg to help with the edit. So some scenes were cut down, some scenes were extended just to uh, kind of have it be the pacing that American audiences were used to. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I made Lex watch this. Uh, What did you think of it? This movie is something. I had never seen this. This was a big, it was a fixture in a lot of childhoods of people I know. Uh, the people who grew up with Never Ending Story, uh, it's, it's, uh, it holds a very special place in their heart. I'd missed it completely. Really, all I knew about Never Ending Story was that there was a flying dog thing called Falcor. Okay. That was, that was the extent of my knowledge. I, didn't, I don't think I knew until I watched it for this show that it was directed by Wolfgang Peterson. Wolfgang Peterson has a really interesting filmography. Uh, made a lot of, obviously, a, a lot of movies in... German before starting to make movies for American audiences. But this is the guy who directed Das Boot, uh, In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood, Outbreak, the one where the monkey's carrying a virus. You know Outbreak. Yes. Air Force One, Get Off My Plane, that's him. Troy, Brad Pitt has a vulnerable heel. Okay. The Poseidon Adventure remake. 
weird. He was attached at one point, if I'm not very much mistaken, in the late 90s, maybe very early 2000s for a minute there to make a Batman Superman movie. Oh, interesting. Which obviously uh, did not happen. Point Mm. being, this dude's got a really eclectic filmography. Yeah. And Never Ending Story sits so interestingly to me alongside movies like Das Boot and In the Line of Fire. Well, Das Boot was his... Was the movie that was right before Never Ending Story. Yes. And I wanted to be, I, I would love to be in the room when they were trying to find somebody to helm the Never Ending Story. This, I mean, it, it, the movie goes hard, to be fair. But it's it's ultimately, it's a, it's a whimsical story about the power of imagination and hope overcoming darkness and, and nothingness. And I want to know what the conversation was like that led them to the Das Boot guy. <laughs> um, I... Honestly, couldn't tell you. I mean, he did write the screenplay, so it may have been a passion project for him. He may have read the book and been like, I've got to do this movies, because um, that's how he talks. Yes. That's the, the German accent. Absolutely. Is. Um, so I assume maybe in his eyes, he was like, I have a vision uh, and I'm going to make it so. And then it, it all came together. That's how he does it. Yeah. That's how he made Troy. Yep. Also a passion project. He was like, oh, boy, I love the classics, so I'm going to make a modern classic. Um, you know, because classics is the name of the major if you're studying mythology and Greek and Roman mythology in school. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify that for our audience. If they are not as <clears throat> educated as myself. You see, Tari is what we call a coastal elite. Yeah. He has no regard for the blue collar working class. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. My making... collars are white and above. White and above. Yeah. Uh, ultra white. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes they're uh, so above white that you can't even see them. You have to be of a certain caliber to, like, for your eyes to even take in the spectrum that I'm at. <laughs> His collars are literally made of prisms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, I was introduced to the never ending story actually in elementary school. It was a rainy day. And so they would show movies in a trailer. I feel like, yeah, this would, this seems like a perfect, our activity got rained out movie for groups yeah. of kids. Right. So on one rainy lunch, um, in a, a trailer that was packed full of way too many kids, I saw pieces of this. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like I remember some parts differently than they happened. Um, I, I, I guess I also, it's my kid brain because some of these, this movie is fairly dark. Um, Way more so than I was expecting. Yeah. And so some of the parts, I, uh, I remember them being very uh, scary and like, mo- like even more tragic. So there's a moment when... Uh, two statues start crumbling away and I remember them just going just like wings falling off and, oh. and like everything. Yeah. That one was a little less intense. It was. Uh, so seeing it again, I was like, Oh, okay. I'm sure my kid brain was like, everything's falling apart. Um, <laughs> that one thing fell off. Ah. Yeah. Um, wait, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves though. We should, we should go back slightly. I want you to pitch this to me. So that the audience, maybe if they, like me, did not acquaint themselves with Never Ending Story early on, maybe they'll find it a little easier to follow. Because this is, 
it's a movie where uh, out of context, none of it will make any kind of sense at all. In context, it only makes so much sense. But maybe if we contextualize some of this, it'll be a little bit easier to track. Oh, you want me to do the pitch, baby? Do the pitch. Oh, you want me to do the pitch, baby? Less so every second. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So if I were to try to pitch the never-ending story. Yes. uh, I would say that if you love... Uh, Jim Henson style puppetry. Mm-hmm. If you love uh, storytelling that doesn't hold children's hands and really lets them experience the the darkness and despair of actual life, <laughs> your beloved pets will die. I mean, it's true. Uh, if you if you want a, a story that is so meta that it ropes you into it as well as the viewer then like never ending story is for you. It's, it's conceptually interesting, visually interesting. Um, and it really like finds a way of wrapping you in that will like all that said, like I think watching it as an adult, there are some things that you're like, that's weird. Um, and some things you might pull out that I think are more explained in the books than they are in the movie. Cause uh, the movie is the first half of the first book yeah they they hobbited it before peter jackson hobbited the hobbit yep i'm sure that peter jackson was like i'm gonna do that shit but i'm gonna make the second one because i want money which is also why he made the first one right yeah yeah um <laughs> hey, he, he picks up the phone he's like hey martin freeman you want some money martin freeman's like yes <laughs> <laughs> and that's why there are three hobbit films yep uh, so, I mean, that's the general pitch. I think that, like, I really can't sell it anymore out without spoiling stuff. So right. I'm going to drop down that sweet spoiler wall right now. Okay. <laughs> Go. Yes? Oh, yeah. I'm like, all right, let's do it. Um, uh, Yeah, I guess, right, very broadly, it's about a, a kid who's outcast. He's bullied. He hides in a bookshop. He finds a fancy, mysterious book, and he starts to read the story, and then he and by extension as you say we the audience are pulled further and further and further into the world of of fantasia so 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 did nobody when disney made their fantasia was nobody like hey <laughs> um i don't when do when was disney's fantasia made i want to say it was like wasn't it like the end of the i actually have no idea okay well i mean i think that fantasia is the Americanized version. Uh, I think that the the direct translation is Fantastica. Oh, so uh, Disney's Fantasia was uh, forty four years earlier than the Never Ending Story. So in fact, it would be Disney that would say, "Hey, yeah." And Disney's normally really on top of that. Like, what didn't the Disney Company at one point weren't there like kids murals at schools, and the Disney Company was like, "You got to paint over those." Maybe. I feel like I heard that. That could be something the internet invented. But still, they're pretty litigious. So I'm surprised that we never heard the the never-ending story of that piece of litigation. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I mean, maybe the term uh, Fantasia extends beyond them. And so, like, they can't copyright that that word or that concept. Fantasia 2000 was a really petty swipe at never ending story. <laughs> it was like, you want to make more sequels, motherfucker <laughs> too bad. You can't, <laughs> I ain't got no scruples. Um, th- 
That's that's <laughs> is the that Dis- Mickey Mouse. That's, Who is the, yeah, that? that's the, the, no, that's the Disney um, like catchphrase. It's like I Disney. No I ain't got no scruples. Yeah, um, and that's what they yell in the courtroom as well. They're like, "Do you know who I am? I'm Disney. I ain't got no scruples." Million dollar fine. And the guy talking is just some guy who wandered in off the street and immediately he's picked up and carried out by bailiffs. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then the lawyer walks up and is like, as the man said, we ain't got no scruples. <laughs> who is this character? This is the lawyer. This is Disney's lawyer. <laughs> Why does he talk like that? Because that's how lawyers talk, Lex. It's his coastal elite Have you voice. never met a lawyer? <laughs> Uh, That's what they teach you in law school. Like, once you pass the bar, they're like, here's how you extend your arguments. Right, there's diction courses and things. Right, and you're like, okay. The law. The law. (laughs) I uphold the law. I uphold the law. And you've got people in the the class, like, everybody's reading it out in turns, and one guy's like, I I will uphold the law. And the instructor's like, you will never pass the bar that way. Yep. (laughs) Um, It's all about, like, extending your your vowels. Ooh, I'm a lawyer. Yeah, it's the coastal elite voice. (laughs) Maybe I've only met... Um, uh, Wizards of the Coast. No, Lawyers on the Coast. What? Uh, Wizards of the Coast is a company that does the magic cards. Um, lawyers okay. on the Coast are the lawyers that I've met who I speak see. with elongated vowels. Got it. Anyway, Lawyers of Waverly Place. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> I'm I've lost track of all thoughts. Um, that's all right. That's that's you. You're allowed because you're a coastal elite, and nothing can touch you. That's true. That's right. I have all of the protection. Right. You you're insulated socially. You have all of the money. Right. Yeah. So doesn't matter, man. They can't. They can't. It doesn't matter if you have anything to say at all or or know what that thing might be. Coastal elite, bro. Hell yeah. You're protected. You're part of the protected class. Heck yeah. Speaking of coasts, man, Atreyu, the character that was sent on a quest by the young empress, was really coasting through the the lands until he met a, uh, he got to the darkest place of all. You see that, uh, you see that transition? Yeah, I'll I'll take it. Thank you. Um, So a really big standout character is Atreyu, who um, is like... Bastion's surrogate in this story. Right. So like, and you get the impression that depending on who is reading the book, uh, Atreyu will take on their attributes. Right. Because before we see Atreyu in the story for the first time, uh, Bastion finds that image of the, the Native American charging at whatever he was charging at on horseback. It's a buffalo, yeah. It's a buffalo, that's right. Because, right, they hunt purple buffalo or something where Atreyu's from. Yeah. Which... I, w- I would like to see that movie. I would like to see the the, the slow, uh, meditative western where Atreyu hunts purple buffalo mm. and maybe like falls in love and has to save his father's uh, land or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I couldn't I couldn't decide whether or not it was it was problematic. 
and I, I ultimately am not one to be bothered by these things, but I had, and I got over it very quickly, but when Atreyu first showed up, I had a moment of, wait, is this, well, how, how through the prism of 2019 optics might one feel about the choice to deck him out that way? Unless, it, I don't know much about this actor. Was the actor who played Atreyu Native American, or was it a white person in some some Native American garb? Um, I don't have an answer for that. I know that he is he went to school in LA. So like he's American, he's just an American dude. Um, I mean, I think that like, I don't think that that was a consideration for them in terms of like native American versus like, right. Because the, I believe the character in the books is supposed to have like green skin and is supposed to look a lot different. Got it. And so they were just like, let's simplify this. Right. I don't think I would have thought about it for a second. If the image Bastion looks at before Atreyu, enters wasn't so explicitly native american right um yeah also like atreyu is i think the composer's son um interesting yeah he's related to someone in the like above the line cast crew got it um so you know i it was always going to be him that that hathaway was always going to be atreyu but yeah so i really like the the journey that Atreyu goes on because it, it is very much like a traditional quest, you know, like and, and you get a lot of his journey through exposition where Bastion is, is doing voiceover and talking about like he went to this place and he flew over the silver mountains and all these things and never really found what he was looking for, which his like quest was very ambiguous. It was like, hey find something that will save the queen or the empress. Right. right. And combat nothing. I mean, your, your adversary in this story is literal nothing uh, embodied by smog, I guess. Kind of. Yeah. Like is, is the whole thing a metaphor for pollutants in the air? Um, no, you're thinking of Fern Gully. God, well, that's, that's not even a metaphor. That's explicitly pollutants in the air and whatnot. (laughs) Um, just because they sing doesn't mean (laughs) they can't be a metaphor. Um, uh, every movie, if you, if you work hard enough, every movie is about how we're destroying the planet. I mean, that's true. I mean, especially now. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Especially <laughs> now. Yep. Heroes now more than ever. <laughs> um, so the nothing is actually, it, it seems to be kind of a, a metaphor for uh, people's loss of imagination. Right. Um, and this is something that we weave through the entire story, both thematically, implicitly, and also very explicitly. We right. Get, I do want to touch on what is maybe my favorite, my actual my favorite scene in the movie is one of the lowest key scenes. It's the scene very early on between Bastion and his father. Oh yeah, played by George McCraney, who I know from Deadwood, where he played George Hurst. Okay, and I'm sitting there watching Bastion eat his breakfast and shit, going like, motherfucker, he's right behind you. He's gonna kill you and take your land. Uh, but I like the scene a lot. Uh, largely because of the way he's playing it. I like that Bastion's father seems to to care he does like he's not portrayed as like a a domineering monstrous parental figure who's like imagination is terrible and you you need to stop because no one cares what you think none of that yeah you know i do like though the scene early in the scene uh bastion's telling him he's like he had a dream about his his uh deceased mother yeah and i love that 
Gerald McCraney, the way he plays it, he's in the background and he's continuing to make a smoothie while he's responding. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't respond. It's interesting because his words seem callous, but his performance has greater warmth to it. But the the bit about how, well, you know, we can't let mom not being here uh, be an excuse for get, not getting the old job done and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but he is the character who essentially says, you know, not even, and again, not in an angry uh, um condescending way but basically saying you know you can't spend all your time daydreaming you got to keep your your feet on the ground and you get a lot i like this scene because you get a lot of information about bastion's father Mm -hmm. in this scene and of course you never see this character again in the movie but you get a a really great picture of what what that character is and what his impact on his son is and it's not it's not it's there's still like love there and i think that's interesting because i think there are a lot of stories that would paint that character if not uh, as a villain necessarily certainly as a bit of an antagonistic force right but he's very he's very pragmatic he clearly cares about his son and i i appreciated that about it and you get like i said you get a ton of information about their relationship in this very short scene and then of course you set up one of the biggest themes of the entire story which is you know, trying to reconcile, uh, you know, the desire of others to, to keep your feet on the ground and your own desire to keep your head in the clouds as long as you possibly can. Right. So anyway, I like that scene. No, it's a really good scene. Um, I agree that it's really played well because like, you know, we've all had parents who have been like, oh, it's time to get your your stuff together. You can't just be daydreaming all day. Um, though I do like to imagine there's a, a deleted scene where he gets a call that his son never showed up to school and he's just crying because he's like, first my wife and now my son. Everything is coming apart. Yeah, but he's he's crying while he's making a smoothie. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, no excuse for not getting the old job done. <laughs> and he's like, you see him pour a whole bottle of vodka. Into the <laughs> I mean, because it's it's crazy. I think again, it's another thing that, like, as an adult, you realize that Bastion left his home in the morning, and I guess you'd have to imagine stayed overnight because when he does, when the at the end of the climax of this of the movie it's nighttime right so uh, he's right so he's been gone all day and he's he's chased off by the bullies he hides in a bookstore and he he basically has to swing his dick around and be like yo i read look at all of the books i've read bitch and the bookstore owner's like well shit okay i've been, I've been put in my place let me wander away from this magic book so you may or may not find it and shit right and then bastion t- literally steals I mean, one of the first decisions that our our child protagonist makes is to steal someone else's shit and leave a little note, be like, I'll give it back, I swear. Yeah. Because that makes it okay. Like, I'm going to try that out now. I'm going to go and, like, (laughs) next time I'm at Ralph's, I'm going to grab a whole bunch of stuff, but I'll have index cards with me. And every time I pull something off of the shelves, I'll be like, I'm going to return this this bag of popcorn. There you go. But but I'm going to return this pound of tuna. So, I guess the one flaw with your plan <laughs> is the law. Um, well, I was going to say that like a book maintains its form once used. Right. It's very difficult to return a pound of tuna. Right. Yeah. So no it, you're, it. you're either providing a bag of vomit or a bag of poop. <laughs> like these are your options. This is as good as gold. 
Mm-hmm. Think about all the mm-hmm. land you could buy with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From a very confused landowner. <laughs> Uh, yeah, who doesn't I mean, realize like if if you could convince somebody that they fell asleep for a hundred years and now this is currency, uh huh, and then get them to sign it over, and then they find out that they've been screwed out of their land, yeah, and thus begins their hero's journey. Ah, uh, that's like, what happens to uh, adult Bastion. That's what that's what Neverending Story three is about. Oh yeah, definitely. Um. Yep, because he spends so much time in Fantasia that he comes back and the bullies are grownups now and they're like, yeah, we use poop. We use poop as a, as a currency because like, it's a great cycle of life. You consume and then you use that poop to grow more vegetables and then you eat those vegetables. It's a great cycle. And Bastion's like, well, my dad's dead because I've been gone so long and he killed himself because I thought I was, uh, I was kidnapped. And so I have this house. So why don't I, I'll, I'll take I'll take all your poop for this house. And then uh, he finds out that he was tricked, and is like, "Oh man, I, I should probably go back to Fantasia." It's <laughs> like Falcor chased them into the garbage again. <laughs> um, but so he steals the book, right? Yeah. And then this this thieving uh, delinquent, this danger, this menace to society, uh, goes to school. But then ducks out of his classes and sneaks into the most preposterously creepy attic that a school could have. I mean, is it creepy? There's it's, literally, there looks like there's a skeleton in there, man. And like, you could be like, well, it's a moder- uh, model skeleton for a science class and be like, nah, I don't believe you. My head canon is that's a dead person. That's the <laughs> last person who tried to read the story in there. Like the bookshop owner has been doing this for for decades right. trying to find he's like mr glass and shit he he's trying to find the one person who uh, uh has the ability to sustain the damage that the book inflicts and whatnot uh-huh um and that guy that skeleton couldn't couldn't take it oh man couldn't take it at all and like if you had spent more time in that attic like he you know he wanders around but he's usually in you know dark little corners when he puts the book down it's like they can't be talking about me he's all he's in the dark and stuff but if you lit that room a little bit if he lit some candles and stuff you'd see all of the the dead people it would be like um uh in in guardians of the galaxy volume two under the planet when you see spoilers all of the bones (laughs) of ego's children and whatnot it's like that yeah but you don't see, or it's like at the it's uh, uh, at the end of uh, from dusk till dawn. More spoilers when you pull back from the the back of the bar and you see it's an ancient temple with all of the destroyed like trucks and there's bodies and shit all over the place. That's that's what it's like, and the bookseller is behind all of it. He is the power behind the nothing ah, that the wolf was talking about. Right. Um. Now that you brought that up, because I really want to talk about because we've started talking about Atreyu, who is the the champion of the light, and now, and we also got Gmork, Gmork, um, the champion of the nothing, Wolfenstein, um, who like it at the very end of the movie is like, hey, here's all this exposition about like what the nothing is and how it's being used. Also, there's a ba- there's another bad guy. Bye. Well, and then he jumps at Atreyu, and Atreyu literally he kills the big puppet thing by impaling him through the heart. Yeah. It was just pretty gnarly. Um, apparently, uh, just a little trivia for you guys. Um, that wolf puppet, um, they only got one shot 
of that because it almost uh, ripped his eye out. Um, when the puppet almost ripped the kid's eye out? Yeah. Dang. So, like, in the next scene, you see a little scar by his face. That was a real scar. Because he, he, like, the, the when it jumped out, the claw, like, grazed his face. Um, that's, accidentally. Got, got, that's got to violate some kind of child labor or something, no? Not in Germany, baby. No. <laughs> you can do whatever you want to children in Germany. We are lawless. As long as you're videotaping it. <laughs> that's the rule. Um, <laughs> Good Lord. But uh, I really I liked that character because he also goes through his own like hero's journey. The wolf. Yeah. All right. Because like he's sent on his uh, he's sent on his uh, on his quest at the very same time that Atreyu is, and so you see him start to track down Atreyu. So he starts going in all these different areas that Atreyu was, and he almost gets him. He almost gets Atreyu. And Atreyu, luckily, because Luck Dragon, uh, gets rescued at the last minute. I will say that's a really well-executed, very suspenseful bit of business. Yeah. Like, obviously, I'm sitting there watching the the movie going, all right, well, you're not going to kill the child protagonist at least this early in the movie. So you assume he's going to get saved somehow, especially once you know Falcor is on his way and whatnot. Right. But they, it cuts it so close that you actually have that moment for a second. Like, oh, is he going to lose a leg or something in the sequence? Yeah. He doesn't. I mean, but maybe he does. Maybe they sewed it back on. In, in a deleted scene. Yeah. And they cut it because it was a, it was just horrifying to everybody. Probably. Like, every the, the grown men were weeping. <laughs> I would have. It would have been sad. Uh, but, yeah. So, um, and then the when they next meet... Uh, they're both at their all is lost moment and they essentially like you get the comedy tragedy ending for them both where Gamork does his statement of purpose and Atreyu does his statement of purpose and then the comedy is that uh, Atreyu wins in like Shakespearean terms because he went he he survives right and the tragedy in terms of Gamork, because he dies. Right. But if either one of them would have won, like if it would have been the other way around, it would have been a hero moment for that other one. So like the nothing would have raised up Gamork and been like, you did it. You're amazing. Then Gamork would have been like, I'm a wolf. Um, See, you're making me feel kind of bad for Gamork. Well, you should. Because he was on his hero's journey. I, I he, wasn't. I guess I wasn't tracking it as closely as I could have been. Yeah. But when you put it that way, I feel a little feel a little bad. I feel like maybe they they didn't need to kill each other after all. Um, Except maybe they kind of did. I mean, yeah. Well, <laughs> when two heroes' journeys clash, one of them has to go. Unstoppable force, immovable object. It's true. That's how it works. But he he kills the thing with a really more of like a sharp piece of rock, right? Yeah, yeah. But I thought that was pretty gnarly. Like it's just it, he's dead. He just kills the big puppet wolf thing. <laughs> there's some there's some stuff that's upsetting in this picture. I agree. Can we talk about the, the horse drowning. Like, all right. So yes. I'm really glad that they undrowned the horse at the end of this thing because I that upset me. I was it, not prepared for how upsetting that sequence would be. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's, it traumatized a lot of people as a, as youths. Um, it like every time I hear the, the word Artax, 
Like, I can just hear Atreus screaming, being like, come on, you stupid horse! Because it, it, it is legitimately upsetting to, like, see this creature falling into... Like, he can't verbalize his despair. Um, right. And so, like, you, you see it, uh, essentially him being swallowed up by the, the essence of sadness uh, until he is no more. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. I was devastated by the end of this scene. I was like, do I turn this off now? <laughs> do I need therapy? I mean, maybe. It was no. I mean, it really, it shook me. Well, so that is, that to me is a really interesting aspect of the movie as a whole in that it it shows characters in full despair. Like, not only the horse who you have to see die, but, like, also um, the rock biter by the end, who is the first character that you meet. Right. You see him at his moment of of deepest despair where he tried to save his friend. Right. And ultimately, uh, well, he lost them. And, like, he, he starts to, like, question his own strength. Like, you see him like looking at his hands being like, I always thought they were big, strong, good hands, right? but they weren't enough to like save his friends. And at, at that point he decides that like his failure means that life isn't worth living. He's Thor in Endgame. I mean, kind of all of these characters fail at one point or another. Like back when we were talking about Gamork, he failed and he was in that cave because he realized it was useless. Um, he was about to get swallowed up by the nothing. Mm. Um, you know, Atreyu fails multiple times. Like, and, and he gets to the point where he's on that beach, not able to find the boundaries of, uh, of Fantasia. And he's also reached his like point of, of despair. And he almost gives up at that point, if not for him meeting Gamork and, and like having that moment of like heroism. Right. Um, he too would have just been swallowed up or let, allowed himself to be so. Um, so like every character, even, even Bastion kind of has to be coaxed into doing what he needs to do. Like he never really believes it until the very last moment. Um, and then he like, he basically comes down to the wire to where there's only one grain of sand left of Fantasia. Everything else is gone. Um, so like no one really does any, I guess Falcor remains pretty cool to the end. He's like, I'm a luck dragon. I'm I fuck shit up real good. Hell yeah! You you want me to find your 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 necklace? Got it. You want me to save you at the last minute? Got it. Oh boy! You want me to terrorize those bullies? On top of it, Hell what yeah. I was really hoping, because at the end, you know, obviously Bastion gets folded into the story, and he gets to make wishes, and he ends up getting to ride Falcor, and he takes Falcor back to the city where he lives and spooks the bullies so they jump in the dumpster. But for about half a second, I was I was like, oh, this will be amazing is if it's like Game of Thrones, but spoilers, when Daenerys is like, fuck it, I'm going to burn everything down. Yeah. And he just it's him and Falcor just laying waste to the entire city while Bastion <laughs> cackles. And then the, the Empress sits there on her throne with one tear coming down her face, realizing that Bastion had the nothing inside of him all along. <laughs> um, actually, uh, so I was doing a lot of research on the book and something like that kind of happens. Oh. Um, like in the second half of the book? Yeah. Got it. Because I will say this. I will say 
when I found out that it only adapts the first half of the book, that made a lot of sense to me insofar as it feels like once we get towards the end, we start to wrap things up real fast. Right. Um, uh, yeah, which is weird because I feel like we meander a bit in the beginning, but it, it is also part of that, like, you, you know, if you draw the, the hero's journey, like, symbol or not the sign, but the graph of how like peaks and valleys and stuff. Sure. Like we definitely like get there. Yeah. Um, and it ends the way that you would expect a lighthearted adventure story to end. Um, but the way that the book continues on is that like the wishes that he makes, essentially he, he, they are granted at the expense of his own memories. So every time he makes a wish and restores a part of Fantasia, he loses a memory. That's, uh, pretty dark oh yeah so by the end of this is it like flowers for algernon and by the end of the story he's just sitting there vacant not doesn't even remember fantasia at all barely remembers who he is he's trying to get like a square peg through a round hole and stuff um probably well i don't i've Uh, never fucked up shit in this story sir well yeah i've never seen flowers for algernon or read it well it's i think the the movie's called uh uh charlie Okay. I think with uh, Cliff Robertson, mm. if I recall correctly. Okay. But he does, uh, like, he starts to change his his outer appearance, and he... Um, <laughs> He's got a goth phase. <laughs> kinda. So uh, he, as he, like, does that, and as he keeps making more wishes, and as he starts to forget who he was, like, he starts to kind of become a, a megalomaniac, because now he has all this power to, like change the world that he's created um and so he try he overthrows the the child empress and then atreyu essentially has to lead a rebellion against him and he so like, he's actually like the darth vader of this story kind of yeah all right interesting yeah he um so like a part of if i remember correctly the way that it, it the way that his story ends specifically is that he like he wanders around Fantasia trying to uh, finish the stories that he had started before he went mad. But since he's lost all of his memories, he doesn't remember how they're supposed to end. And so it's like a a tragic journey of uh, trying to accomplish a thing that can never be done. Well, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Is that what the second movie is about? Because I'm I'm aware that the, or what I read was that they use the second half of the book as sort of the basis for the second movie, which implied to me that it's not a direct adaptation of the second half of the book. Right. It, uh, they like touch it a little bit. Um, so he doesn't become evil. No. All right. He never becomes evil. That's what would have, I'd be like, I'm going home right now. Fuck this podcast. I'm going home right now to watch part two where the little boy becomes evil. But if you're telling me that that doesn't happen, I will stay here and ride this out. Okay. Uh, well one, (laughs) Never tell me to fuck my podcast ever again. <laughs> Two. Um, I I assume because this movie was so dark, they really decided not to pursue that avenue. And so the second one is definitely like way lighter. Right. It's hard um, to m- merchandise a movie this bleak towards small children, I suppose. Yeah. Which like I think that is part of the reason why the original book author didn't like the movie in that like he felt like one, all of his books do not talk down to children. And so he's like, Hey kids, 
death is a thing and and, it'll, and you know it, all these adult concepts like i guess he also has a, a book about a dragon that would steal children uh to try to lecture them about uh dragon uh purity so he context he uh grew wait, up wait like like dragon eugenics yes all right so yes context he Intrigued. grew up uh in the midst of you know world war Two. yeah there was some uh there's some freaky shit happening yeah um so i think for him that's, this that's like what public school taught me about world <laughs> war Two. so between the late 1930s and the early 1940s some freaky shit was happening oh uh, yeah that will be on the test it's it's true. It was the test was one question, and it's true false. Freaky shit was happening. <laughs> true. true. A. <laughs> A plus. <laughs> um. So yeah. So so that idea um permeates his uh all of his writing makes some sense. Yeah. Um. So he felt like this movie ending on a positive note undermines the idea. Uh, of his book, which was that like, un- like imagination without uh, a purpose is a dangerous thing. And like you, it's not, you're not supposed to try to escape from, from your reality. You're supposed to use your imagination to like, you know, forward the rest of mankind and things right. of that sort. Not right. Not to escape your reality, but ideally to improve it. Right. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it, the book is supposed to show the folly of trying to escape your reality, which is why when he gets to, when Bastion gets to Fantasia and starts like trying to change himself and trying to change the world in his own image and things of that sort, um, like it, you, you see how, or the dangers of that because he was a, trying to escape his own reality. Right. Like his, in the book, his, his, his reading is more obsessive than like, oh, look, I'm cool. I like books. And it's more that like he lost his mom. And then the only way that he really copes with it is to read and try to escape, you know, like drastic escapism. Sure. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I feel like, uh, yeah, I feel like, feel like we could all sort of relate to that, especially now. A lot of us feel powerless to change our reality. So many of us are driven to escape it. Right. I bet I bet this dude would love the Marvel movies. Ah, uh, probably. Uh, <laughs> he'd, he'd watch like he'd watch Infinity War, and he'd go, "Wow, fuck my entire previous thesis, fuck <laughs> all of it. I'm living here now." Yeah. Um. <laughs> though the the bookstore owner would not like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That's right, because he comes in and, and the kids like you know I read a lot of books, and he's like, "What comic books?" Yeah. And the kid's like, why are you talking like that? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I wonder if uh, if I gave him, if I handed the bookstore owner Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Maybe then. He'd be like, what are these fucking pictures? <laughs> this green <laughs> douchebag. <laughs> I hate green. You can tell. He's... <laughs> <laughs> the reason the reason he likes prose so much is because none of it is green. It's true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, it's very experienced. Yes. Yeah. I get it. Uh, yeah, you get terrible it. Terrible joke. Ha-ha. That doesn't even make sense in this uh, context. He's dabbing now. always makes sense. <laughs> Everything I say makes, if anything, it makes dollars. Uh, 
Oh, yeah. Right, your, your coastal elitism has gone too far. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, oh, also, speaking of characters that fell into despair. Yes. One of my favorite characters from this movie, uh, who I also assume is in the books, is Morla the giant turtle. Yeah. Um, she, she's like the most nihilistic character and you can tell that she's been alone for so long. Right. But she doesn't really give a shit. She's like, I don't even care that I don't care. Yeah. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) And the kid's like, that's unnecessarily rude. Yeah. But she doesn't care. She doesn't care that she's being rude. I don't care how rude it is. Look, (laughs) I'm going to poke you with my foot he's like hey stop it <laughs> like no i don't care that you want me to stop this is fantasia where there is no consent <laughs> oh no <laughs> i told you this movie goes hard sir <laughs> um i liked i like the sneezing bit that like yes. it still makes me laugh yes um, where she's sneezing at him with the force of of jets yes but also there's i think it's on the third one where like He's been he's been pushed off the tree, climbs up the tree, talks some more, pushed off the tree, climbs up the tree, and then like she goes to start sneezing and he like rolls his eyes so hard and then braces himself and then she's like, I'm okay. <laughs> and then fucking does it again and he's like, I hate this, I hate you. I hope you get pulled up by the nothing by your fucking butthole. I really like though, I like the exchange where he's like, Are you know, are you sick? And she's like no, I'm allergic to you. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I'm a fucking power turtle. Fuck you. It's her catchphrase. Yep. Mm-hmm. Fucking power turtle. <laughs> she's the breakout character. <laughs> you get the little Burger King toys with a little pamphlet, and you see all the little toys you can collect with their little catchphrase, and it mm-hmm. says, I'm a power turtle. Fuck you. <laughs> um. Oh. Speaking of uh, breakout characters, sure. Um, another big controversy was the busty Southern uh, oracles. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Those are in the movie. Yeah. Um. Well, those were the 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 statues I was talking about earlier. If you've been listening since the beginning, if you're just tuning in, I mentioned earlier that I remembered a scene differently. Uh, well, when Atreyu, the main character of this film, the never-ending story, reaches the Southern Oracle, uh, they start crumbling, and I remember them crumbling into nothingness. I remember them basically just falling and cracking all around him like a shower of of disembodied oracle but it's mostly their faces it's just their faces and they start to go away yep um but they are one they're the only character that is very direct and tells atreyu exactly what he needs even though technically they only gave him half of the story right um but they also have a fun they have like fun little trials to get to them if you so the first one is the the southern gate which looks just like the southern oracles right and they if you doubt yourself 
they will kill you. Right. Like they send one homeboy on a horse in there and that dude dies. I appreciate though that the horse doesn't die. The horse fucks off out of there. Oh yeah. <laughs> the horse is like, what an asshole and gallops <laughs> away <laughs> and shit. Oh we, yeah. We haven't even mentioned the, the gnome people yet either. Oh yeah. They're, uh, they're in the movie. <laughs> Uh, we'll talk about them after. And then the next trial. Yeah. Um, which is supposed to be the worst trial is uh, it's the mirror. It's the ice mirror. I mean, look, if you've got self-esteem issues, that could be pretty harsh. Having to just take a good hard look in the mirror and stuff. That's true. I guess if you're anyone but the protagonist of this uh, of this film, then I guess it it just shows you. Like all of your worst aspects, whereas like for Atreyu, it just showed him that he. I guess technically it could be pretty disconcerting to know. I wonder if they explore this in the book because from the moment you get to the Southern Oracle, there's all this stuff that could really fuck with you as a person. Where like one, you realize that you're just a vessel for for some outside force. Like you're 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 basically just a, an avatar. And then there's that moment when he's in the that like cave system where he meets Gamork where he's seeing all these old ancient paintings of him doing everything he did on his journey right um, and that immediately raises questions about is there such a thing as free will right in Fantasia which is crazy it's pretty heavy it's a big trip to lay on a kid yeah although you know we establish pretty early on that Atreyu is supposed to be you know he's he's uh Obviously, he's like this fabled guy, but he's pretty, he's proficient. Like, he's mastered a lot of skills in terms of hunting and combat and stuff. Yeah. Um, even so, still, very young person. It's uh, some, some heady stuff. Yeah. And he had already gone through a lot of, like, sadness. Like, he, he, was, he was about to be sinking in that, that uh, swamp of sadness. So, he, he's already a bummed out, and now he realizes he's not even his own man. Right. What a bummer. Um. But that, that anyway, that was really cool. Um, and then yes, we get the the gnome characters who it's a it's a husband and wife, which really reminded me of the miracle Ma- miracle Max and his wife in um, the Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if there is a correlation. I wonder if one of them was influenced by the other. It's possible, right? And Princess Bride uh, also has in common with Neverending Story the idea of a world that takes place in st- entirely within a storybook that a young person is, well, in the case of Neverending Story, reading himself, and in the case of Princess Bride, being read. Right. Um, but there is. There's some interesting overlap between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were fun. Like, I will say that I think that, like, the the thing I really like about the never ending story which i think is the most memorable part is all of the different characters there's no character that is generic or baseline they're all really quirky and serve a purpose there there's nothing like tropey about them sure like, yeah you get a racing snail you get a, a giant rock biter you have a bat that is used as a uh what i don't remember what the name of that uh, uh, sport or, or extreme sport is right. Paris, parasailing, uh, paragliding, uh, para- hang gliding, hang basically. gliding. Yeah, he's used as a hang glider for a hairy other guy. Like for a hairy other guy. Yeah, but it's true. There's there's really nothing tropey about any of the characters. The closest being, of course, uh, you know, you could argue Atreyu and the 
Empress are slightly tropey characters. Right. But the rest of the characters, yes, uh, much less so. Whereas like Princess Bride, for example, the characters are very intentionally tropey so that they can play on those tropes for comedic effect, for example. Right. So there's that. <laughs> um, and even even Atreyu being... Because the way that the, the actor plays it also is very like... how he's He's very much how you would have a a video game character that doesn't like really like he emotes a lot, but he also is very much like a POV character where like you're supposed to feel what he's feeling. Right. And he lets you do that through like, sometimes he'll be a little more understated so that you can kind of feel the gravity of that situation. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think that, and I think that that's why people remember this movie so well is because they get such like, such a colorful world and uh, very memorable characters that if, if you're experiencing them, them as a kid, like they stick with you because they're, they're, they're memorable. That tracks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's why I like it. Lex, <laughs> stop making fun of me. <laughs> I'm a power turtle. Fuck you. <laughs> Um, so yeah, uh, do you have any last thoughts about the never ending story before we head out? I mean, I'm, I'm glad I've now seen it. This thing's pretty wild. I was not, I really was not anticipating how dark this thing was going to get in moments. Um, and yeah, you, you compared it to some of the live action, non, non Muppet based Jim Henson projects. And yeah, very quickly I was reminded of things like Labyrinth and Dark Crystal. So if you haven't seen it, but you you have seen those and enjoyed them. That is potentially a way in for you. Uh, I'm curious to see what's in the other movies. I don't know how soon I will go check that out, but I'm curious. Uh, disappointing to hear that he does not descend into pure evil in the second installment. Um, but I'm glad I've seen this. Uh, I feel like maybe I got to it a little too late for it to fully get its hooks into me the way it clearly did for a lot of people. Yeah. But I, I enjoyed it. If, if, only not only but if only for the sheer what the fuck of all of it because <laughs> i was i was not prepared yeah have you ever seen return to oz long time ago okay because it it has that feel for me where it takes these things that you're fairly familiar with but it has a darker turn to it right um and is also very traumatizing um so i think that like if you like these really dark kids stories that will leave you with a a sense of something deeper going on in the background. I think you, I think that is what is the most appealing thing about something like the never ending story. Yeah. Um, Also the main theme is a banger. That's fucking never ending story. That shit. (laughs) Play it every day. Day it's very car. very 80s yes it and, is. and i don't mean that uh in a derogatory sense i mean that as a compliment yeah as you should because it's so good it's so good um but yeah uh but what did you guys think about the never-ending story uh how do you do you wish you had your own falcor would you also give up your memories in order to restore uh, fantasia what would you name the Empress. 
Uh, also, oh, that's right, Moonchild. Yeah. Where did did they set up Moonchild earlier in the story, and I missed it? He said it's his mom's name. No, right, but it's his mom's. I guess I didn't. I heard that, but the dots didn't want to connect in my brain. Why can't you name a child? Why can't you have a person named Moonchild? I guess you know what it is for me. I feel like I have a hard time buying that the dad character would marry a woman named Moonchild. It makes sense to me in that, like, maybe Moonchild, the mom, was like a manic pixie dream girl type character. Right. Where she's like, I'm free, I'm a hippie. And then he's like, oh, man, you're really going to help me get out of my straight-laced ways, and we're going to have a child together. And maybe it's it starts to work, right? But then she dies, and he just goes headfirst back into work. Yeah. And there's a whole other movie there about a father who's a workaholic, who's overly pragmatic, who cares for his son, but their relationship is strained and he has to learn how to open up and love again. Yeah. He's got to learn how to take his feet off the ground occasionally. Indeed. Uh, I, w- I would love to see this story. I think it's called Sleepless in Seattle. I'll take it. Yep. All right. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know what Sleepless in Seattle's about. Neither do I. It's the one that's not You've Got Mail. I think that's what I was thinking of when I said uh, Sleepless in Seattle. Right. Doesn't matter. Right. Um, the Sleepless in Seattle is the one where they don't have mail. Got it. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's how it works. Um, Lex. And, and Joe versus the volcano is the one where he fights a volcano. Yeah. He just punches it until it closes up. It's really cool. Mm-hmm. If you've never seen it, that's really, what it's about. It's very impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Lex, where can people find you if they want to talk to you more about uh, the Neverending Story? Where? Uh, Twitter and Instagram at the Lex Michael. And you can find me at Tari J. T A U R I J A Y. And you can also find this podcast at Missing Outcast. That's M I S S I N G O U T C A S T on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you thought about the Neverending Story or our discussion about the Neverending Story or watch the Neverending Story uh, on Amazon or wherever you get your media. It's readily available. So thanks for joining us. Uh, We'll see you next week. Until then, this has been the Retrospective that's introspective. And I'm a power turtle. Fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and now you have a new perspective. (laughs) 